Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. This is your anchoring host, Rio, and we have AJ back on today. AJ, aka the Pragmatic Progressive. Say hi, AJ. Hey, how's it going? Bernie, uh, I'm sorry, I started to say Bernie Sanders won. Um, AJ wishes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Joe Biden won, which is great. Uh, so maybe 2021 will be better. Assuming that Trump doesn't succeed at uh, overturning the results of the election, which he's trying to do, but he's not he's floundering he's not he's probably not going to succeed what do you think aj well okay there are a couple of things about that if you go from the angle of his main source of attack because he recognizes there is no legal path his advisors had outright told him you will lose this does not bode well for you and he did it anyway that happened multiple times so it all was based on capturing a message to the base and i honestly don't believe it will succeed from a legal perspective, specifically because the implications of that are a civil war, because it identifies a fundamental failure of the democratic institutions that have been put in place, which, and I've seen personally outright people who are Trumpists say they're going to kill Democrats already, which blows my mind. But that's the time we have to prepare for. So from a legalistic perspective, no, he's not succeeding. From a messaging perspective, a lot of the people that voted for him do believe his stuff, and he's propped up by that core base of supporters, which really won't go away. They've been emboldened, and Trump has already disassembled so much of the Republican Party and so much in of the institution from an uh, you know, American government perspective that it becomes substantially harder for there to be a transition because even for the Republican Party, for example, what have been considered uh, super fast transitions, for example, even in negative light, the fastest I've heard of was 10 years, okay? And for 10 years, being optimistic, which is the fastest timeline of Trumpism to kind of fade into relevancy, is not something Americans can afford to blow off, because that is a base that is... uh, very emboldened and they're a very vocal minority and the things that fuel them are things that have been simmering within the country for a long time and i think if we don't identify that and accept that and look about how to move forward politically which i've been thinking a lot about recently we're going to fail what do you mean by fail uh fail to hold off the trumpian base and attack on politics specifically Interesting. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I, I I think that fortunately Trump is more motivated by just his own desire for fame and power and money um, than he is by any kind of ideological uh, persuasion. And he doesn't seem to actually be a committed fascist or something like that. So much as just a person who is going to who is willing to cozy up with any ideology that gives him money and power and fame, right? You see what I'm saying? And so I, I think I think that what Trump's doing right now is not because he's trying to overthrow democracy in service to some grand ideology that he really believes in. I think he's doing it to save face. He's doing it to fundraise off of the rubes. Maybe avoid prison. Maybe avoid prison. And fundraising that he's doing right now in order to fund these bogus cases is just going into a sketchy super PAC that he can use for kind of anything he wants. He can use it to pay off his campaign debts so that he doesn't have to um, pay them himself. He can use it to fund his uh, legal defense in federal and New York state court cases against him coming from the new justice department when he's gone. Um, and, and he can, he can use it to just pay himself and other members of his family for consulting services or other bogus bullshit like that and put it right into his pocket. So I think that's part of the reason he's doing this, but keep in mind what the actual political ramifications of it are. He is persuading his most hardcore and loyal voters that there's no point in voting basically, (laughs) right? Essentially saying like the whole system's rigged. Your vote doesn't count. And I and I saw on Parlay um some maggots were actually saying that they were um 
that they're not going to vote in the Georgia runoff. They're going to boycott the Georgia runoff because what's the point? Because the votes don't count anyway. It's all those rigged Dominion voting machines, don't you know? So I, I, I hope that the consequence of this is that all of those losers supporting Trump go back to what they did before um, and just not vote. Well, okay, a couple things. First off, in terms of him not really being a fascist, I happen to think the amount of times he has teetered on that ideologically and also outright said he wants to try and secure, for example, a third term, uh, things of that nature, the precedent of him trying to curtail democracy across the board makes me kind of believe there's a little more there. Um, but I do think you're right about it being motivated not by believing in outright fascism necessarily, but for personal benefit. And the reality is, is he is has an interesting perspective. I think it was stronger than it is now initially in terms of recognizing being on the offensive continuously. But it's gotten to the point where, you know, rational people and granted, I think rational people should have left him a long time ago. But if you just look at things, for example, in the perspective of let's say theoretically, I supported every single thing he did outright prior to the pandemic, how he handled the pandemic alone would have been enough for me to have not voted for him. So you would think if there was a potential for there to be a lack of voting support and people thinking there's no point anyway, I guess I could see that to an extent. But the reality is the runoff itself, uh, I don't see it not going. Okay, let me rephrase this. Biden wins on paper, period. There's nothing that, there's, there's no disputing that in any capacity. Uh, now the question becomes, can there be any sort of curtailing of democracy, specifically with the passing of RBG? The goal of it is if it gets to the Supreme Court, he's successfully enabled for there to be enough people who would outright support his position in the Supreme Court. And the worrying is, is they found some sort of uh, ballot discrepancy that's enough for them to identify, see if there's something minor here that's wrong, then how can we question the legitimacy of everything? Which, by the way, not a good argument, especially considering that Republicans did well in other aspects of the election. So they would have to throw that out too. But you know, critical thinking isn't involved with people who are in this line of thought. So we have to operate under what is their strategy from here. I do think it's a losing one, but I'm cautiously optimistic about it being a losing one instead of just saying, get over it. You lost. It's time to move on because I don't want to underestimate these people. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly who we're underestimating. I did have an interesting conversation about I was with Adam Hallisey, the uh, editor-in-chief of The Progressive Brief. It's the last guest I had on the podcast. Um, and he's actually in Ireland, uh, but he writes about U.S. politics a lot. And so I was interested to get a perspective, first of all, from somebody who is, you know, outside of the United States looking in and and seeing that the U.S. is basically teetering toward on the edge toward being, you know, like a banana republic you know, third rate dictatorship where you have somebody who can just refuse the uh, to concede that he actually lost the election. But that only happens if Trump succeeds at it. If he doesn't succeed at it, then he just looks like a sore loser, a conspiracy theorist. And it's just another example of his toxic personality further d damaging the brand of the Republican Party. So I've been looking and looking and looking at the data, and it is really it's a little soon to know exactly what happened in the election. Um, and it's a little confusing because the uh, poll um, election polls don't necessarily uh, actually reflect who did vote how because so many people voted by mail and yeah. the mail in voting was predominantly Democrat, whereas the in person voting was predominantly Republican. But it does look like a few things we can say are that Biden did better among Republicans than Clinton did. He did better among independents than Clinton did. Um, and he did better in the suburbs than Clinton did. Uh, and and it, it looks like basically Trump didn't actually outperform 2016 
in terms of getting a percentage of the vote, but he did outperform 2016 among some demographics like people of color and the white working class only in total raw numbers. And that's more of a story of the fact that more people voted. So I think this time around, there are a lot of people who ordinarily do not participate in politics on both sides, right? Who are turned out because this guy has has turned U.S. politics into reality television, and it's gotten a lot more people's attention, right? And so the first thing I've noticed is it's probably a good thing, certainly in the case of the ones who voted for Trump, that those people don't vote ordinarily. <laughs> so if Trump going away means that they just stop voting, I would consider that a positive thing. What do you think about that, AJ? No, I'm inclined to agree with that. I Believe me, I don't want people who support Trump to vote. But I, I mean, because realistically, they're the ones that got us in this mess. So anything that discourages them from voting, um, if it means enough people say things are fundamentally rigged, uh, so be it. I will support them not exercising their democratic right in that sense. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it's also their right to not vote. But I mean, That's I don't know. Say, I like yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a it's bit a civic of a, a duty. I'll, I'll say, cause people say, you know, it's their civic duty to vote, for example. So it was more so about that. If you're not going to exercise that civic duty, uh, by all means. Yeah. And one of my biggest pet peeves is people who don't vote, they don't participate in the process whining about the outcomes. And the, especially if they justify them not voting because of the outcomes. Oh, I don't want to vote because both parties suck. And it's like, well, you know, maybe if more people actually voted, <laughs> you would get different outcomes, right? So, you know, on the one hand, I think that if you're not participating, you have no right to complain. But then also, on the other hand, maybe it's a good thing some of these people aren't voting. So I, I to me, my prediction is, I, I think that maybe about 50% of Trump's voters are either bigots or are at least people who are willing to tolerate bigotry in order to get their way on other policy issues. Um, but then I think there's about another 50% that are just low information voters who, you know, they don't necessarily like Trump per se, but they're going to vote for the Republican because that's what you do. You check the box with an mm -hmm. R next to it. They're partisan and, you know, they probably believe a lot of the hype about how the Democratic Party is being taken over by far left socialists. Um, yeah, yeah and, and, I agree and, with you that know, assessment. A lot of the, a lot of the unrest. Yeah, yeah. And a lot, a lot of the unrest that was going on with, um, you know, the riots, which, you know, some people tried to equate with peaceful protests, even though they're obviously different things. Um, all of that really fed into this fear of the Democrats. So I think that at least 50% of Trump's vote were basically just anti-Democrat votes because they believe that Biden is some kind of like puppet of, you know, the radical left. <laughs> yeah, well, there are a couple things. Number one, I do still think it's important to recognize that if we can really validate the concerns of specific working class voters in a better way and say, you're right about this being a problem. Trump didn't have a solution. This is a direct solution. That's something that's actually helped me take a lot of people out of the Trump perspective, because for starters, or, or even when people have political apathy and they say that both candidates are the same. Well, all what I would do is I would say, what are the issues that are the most important to you and why? And then I would say, okay, here's the evidence that demonstrates what Trump has said he will do, what he has done. And this is what Biden's policy is in comparison. So if you go from it, healthcare, education, infrastructure, I really like his infrastructure plan, by the way, uh, you keep going down the list and there's no comparison. There's no way they're specifically the same. Now I've heard people say, well, there's certain foreign policy similarities, which I don't think is necessarily accurate either, because just because someone, you know, still maintains an interventionist perspective, even though I don't agree with it necessarily, doesn't mean they're fundamentally the same. Also, he's not protectionist, which has a lot more implications than people seem to realize as well. So I think there's a potential for messaging. Another thing is I think 
we need to moving forward recognize that niceties this is a difference i have with a lot of people when they talk about the idea of unity when it comes to working with the republican party i don't necessarily know the extent that's possible you know one thing is princeton study identified that no matter what public opinion was in a specific uh initiative specific bill it had a 30% of passing in Congress. What that means is we can use that information to really go hard in a way that shows political ruthlessness. Because if it's the same percentage, taking back the narrative is something that will help us in the scheme of things against a party that is willing to do anything to maintain its power, be it hypocrisy, curtailing certain. Uh, democratic rights, etc. So with that in mind, I think it will be a mistake. For example, I know there were some early reports that said Biden had looked into having Republicans in his administration. I think that is going to be a genuinely bad move, considering how much obstruction there have been prior to Trump of Demo the Democratic Party for partisan reasons. That has been even more heightened. And if the percentages dictate it's the same, why not play hardball in the same way instead of assuming they're going to be fine? For example, even in Trump's rallies outright, he had said, well, Biden may not be a far leftist, but he's going to employ far, left far leftists, for example. Anyone who knows a modicum about politics would recognize that's just objectively empirically false, but they don't care. And we need to operate under the grounds that they don't care and go from that instead of what we wish is a sense of normalcy, because I don't see that being a possibility. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I don't necessarily agree. I think that Biden does need to try to be bipartisan to some extent, and, and the amount of bipartisanship that's ne that's necessary um, is really rather low, right? But most likely, um, the, the Republicans are going to maintain control of the Senate. Right. Yeah. Which means that at a bare minimum, Biden needs to persuade one or two Republicans to change their vote. Now, of course, that's why Mitch McConnell doesn't allow things to go up for a vote. So if we, if there's a place for public outrage, um, they really ought to be directing at Mitch McConnell. Um, and 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 uh, and and you should and you could you could get a lot of Republican voters angry about that too if you could say like, look, here are the numbers showing this bill could pass if you would just allow us to vote on it. Um, and a lot of Republican voters might want what's in that bill, like if it's COVID relief or something like that, for example. So I do think there's a place for bipartisanship. And also, um, keep in mind the kinds of Republicans that Biden is going to put in his administration are not Trump Republicans. They're liberal Republicans. They're people who share Biden's um, liberal perspective on, on, on globalism as opposed to nationalism, right? Yeah. Um, on liberalism as opposed to illiberalism, on uh, interventionism in order to spread democracy and freedom and overthrow totalitarian dictators, dictators who are committing crimes against humanity, that sort of thing. And I understand that it's fashionable um, in, in progressive circles to act like all of that is bullshit and that the only reason anybody would ever be interventionist is because you're an evil imperialist who just wants to subjugate brown people and make them into your slaves. But that's, you know, that's that's an oversimplification. There are different people with different motives, as you recognized in your analysis, AJ. Yeah, there are people uh, of with course. Different motives for doing that. And so I think the ones that Biden's putting in there, he's not putting them in there just because they're Republicans. He's putting them in there because regardless of their party, you know, they share his policy goals um, in the areas where they're being placed. Can you name examples of people who genuinely were not a part of the Obama administration's obstruction? Because I, I see there being an uh, outcry. For example, I saw something about Lindsey Graham, of all people, saying, hey, Biden, have me in your administration. And that blows my mind because the reality is if you are a part of the obstruction and the curtailing of democracy in any capacity and, and you were a part of why even when Obama tried to reach across the aisle continuously, it was shot down. Um, and when you are a part of smearing Biden, of all people, as a far leftist in any capacity, even though you're not necessarily Trumpian, anything you're doing to delegitimize that message is something that I think should count you out if that's what's in your track record. And I think Republicans yeah, demonstrated no, that with the Obama. They don't, 
Yeah, no, I don't necessarily disagree with that. But, you know, I think I think that there will be less obstruction of Biden than there was of Obama um, for a number of reasons. First of all, because a lot of obstruction of Obama was just because people were mad that there was a black president. Um, And then also because of, you know, Biden is more moderate. Biden is more bipartisan. He has he has uh, people look at him favorably within the Republican Party. I mean, the Lincoln Project ran ads that were literally nothing but Lindsey Graham singing Joe Biden's praises <laughs> during this election, right? So I, I'm not saying that Lindsey Graham should be in his campaign, and I, I totally take your point. Um, but, you know, part of the reason, I guess the way I would look at it is there are two different there are two different motivations for a member of the, you know, a Republican member of Congress to obstruct or to to kind of pander to Trump's attempts at an obstruction at a minimum, right? To downplay them or or seem to echo them to some extent. One of them is because they agree with Trump, and the other one is because they're afraid that they're going to be primaried by Trump's base, right? And I think in most cases it was the latter. And so the if you if you think of politics as a bottom up kind of game, um, which is how. Uh, the left tends to think of it. I'm not saying they're wrong to think of it that way. But if you think of politics as a bottom-up kind of game where it's about this is what the people want, we need to make it happen, um, then Biden's strategy doesn't really make sense. But if you think of it as a kind of top-down game where rather than try to persuade the people, because as you said, for one thing, what the people want doesn't necessarily make any difference. You could, If, if uh, 60% of the national popular vote wants something, it doesn't mean shit unless you can elect 51 members of the Senate who also want that thing, right? Um, and so the top-down approach that Biden is an expert at, na- at navigating is really more a matter of, hey, Lindsey, I'm not again, I'm not saying he should put Lindsey in because I think Lindsey was being, was, was pandering to Trump too much. He's kind of gross, but it's an interesting example because they are friends. Um, but, you know, he could, he could look at somebody like that um, who he is thinking of putting in his cabinet. I don't think he will put Lindsey Graham in. That would kind of surprise me. You can look at somebody at that and say, look, I understand. I know you had to say those things for political survival because Trump's base are a bunch of crazies, right? And you're afraid of them. And I understand that, right? This is just politics, nothing personal. Um, let's work together to pass this infrastructure bill, or let's work together to pass this middle-class tax cut, or let's work together to pass this COVID bill. Because if you can persuade a few people in Congress, that's way more powerful than persuading, you know, um, the the percentage of supporters in California to go from 59% to 71%, because that has no real impact, unless it results in more people being sent to Congress who support it. Those things aren't mutually exclusive, though, in any capacity. And I think they're able to work together. I, I think what you should do is you play you play the politics necessary and you make the arguments both to the public and in private. So a great example is I think about our discussion with student loan debt relief and paid for taxation education. If I were to present to the American people about why from each perspective there is a legitimate reason to have what I believe to be this basic thing. And then I go in private and I say, I will, I am the one that has the public support. I will primary you. And if you try and outright reject this bill, I'm going to come at it even stronger with even more provisions. So you can either have this first one or we can keep this going and I will ensure that this is a PR hell for you. So what you do is if you cause enough PR outroar and you're able to have the ruthlessness or even being able to come together with some sort of deal at the same time. That's what I believe to be the best approach. I think people are too black and white when it comes to that specific issue. And I'm, I agree that I, you know, obviously I think the bottom up is extraordinarily important, especially considering that progressivism, uh, in terms of a legislative perspective has a long way to go in terms of gaining power. And I think if you're trying to be a part of that movement, you have to think about it like that by definition. But another aspect of it is is maintaining their expectations based on where we're at specifically. And I think a part of that is identifying the approach you're saying too. So I think that's a part of what's missing is that political hardball because I notice that the track record in general has been, as a whole, Republicans are willing to stab Democrats in the back when deals are made. 
Um, and, you know, that alone should be enough to say, well, just because Trump is out, I'm not inclined to believe that it's something that will make um, a difference, especially because we still don't know the extent that is a voter block. I don't think it's the majority voting block, obviously, and I think it's we should we can overpower them 100%. But that fear is always going to be there, and that will be utilized as a leverage tool on the back end too. So the only way to ensure that happens is if somehow Trump is imprisoned and his ideology from a legitimate conservative perspective is just completely tarnished. And I don't know the extent that will happen, but instead of theorizing, I think we wait and see and address a strategy based on that. But not, not pandering to it in any capacity, more so just seeing the extent that's used as a scapegoat for why I can't work together with you on COVID relief, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. The problem is gerrymandering means that a threat in a primary really is only effective if what you're trying to do is replace a moderate candidate with a radical of one persuasion or the other. And radicals don't get things done in Congress because there aren't enough of them. Um, and and, ha- and half of the radicals in Congress are of the other radical persuasion. You see what I'm saying? So if we were, if we need to, we if we solve the problem of of partisan gerrymandering, then I think your argument about primaries would be more valid, because then in order, then it could be a situation where you could say like, we're going to go for this policy that has popular support, um, and that actually means something in a primary where independents and and voters from the other party matter. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. I. Still think there's some legitimacy. I think gerrymandering hinders it to an extent for sure. But I also don't. Here's a good example, right? I would be willing to potentially down the line run uh, if for a congressional seat at some point in my life if I believed that the timing was right, etc. But I don't consider myself to be a radical in any stretch of the imagination. I identify uh, what I believe to be operating in the status quo and seeing where we go from there and identifying what I believe to be our just common sense policies that are put in place. And I think I recognize what's the messaging for that. And I think I know the extent the offensive has become more important in political strategy. So that would be why I would want to primary a certain person. It would be if I deem them to be specifically ineffective for one reason or another, I should be able to prove that. I can't speak for the majority of people, but I can say at least for people that are in my vote, that's the time where a primary becomes a lot more supported in general. So if it maintains being from that perspective, I don't know the extent it means a radical would come in by definition, but I think the implementation does matter. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason that Trump got as much support as he did is because he convinced a lot of people to turn out and vote who don't ordinarily vote. And by the way, if the thing that gets you to turn out and vote is that, I mean, the people who turned out to vote against him, hooray for them, right? But I'm talking about the people who ordinarily don't vote and turn out to vote for Trump. If that's Mm -hmm. the thing that gets you to come out from under your rock is like, yay, I finally get to vote for the fascist, anti-democratic, racist, sexist, homophobic piece of shit who's trying to destroy America and is a traitor to the country. (laughs) That's what's going to get you to turn out like you should go home and overdose, like just do this country a favor and kill yourself. Seriously, like what a a piece of human garbage you are. Um, But that's part of it. And then another part of it is that there's no alternative GOP leadership, right? Because everybody is so afraid of his base right now temporarily while trump has power to do something about that um and he'll still have some power after he leaves office but i think he'll be significantly diminished um but because of that there's no alternative gop leadership to step up um and you know so there's 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 really no alternative to trump and then as i said there's this hatred of the democratic party a significant number of people who really just saw it as an anti democratic vote and that's a problem that the democrats need to solve that's not really something the republicans can solve yeah, as they shouldn't, by the way, if both politically and in terms of just common sense, it is not their party by definition. But uh, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I do want to ask you, though, if we follow that line of thought, 
what is the measure of accountability in your opinion for people that were complicit in that? Because emboldening such a dangerous ideology for your own personal political gain and rewarding it for the sake of bipartisanship is a pretty dangerous thing, at least in my view. Yeah, no, I, I think that the Lincoln Project and never Trump Republicans in general need to try to to oust those people, right? And 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 by the way, one thing the Lincoln Project's doing that is very smart is they're not ousting them by running people in the primary against them for the most part because they know that the GOP base is is super pro Trump, right? So you're not going to you're not going to convince voters in a GOP primary right now to oust somebody because they were too favorable of Trump. Right. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Right. So what they're doing yeah, is give it a few as years. Republicans. Yeah. In a few years, maybe. But right right now, as Republicans, the Lincoln Project runs ads for the Democrat and they run attack ads. They run ads that are designed maybe not necessarily to prevent, not, maybe not necessarily um, to persuade Republicans to vote for the Democrat, but maybe to just stay home. Right. Or write in the libertarian or something like that. They're doing it in the general election because. Um, you know, the I mean, gerrymandering is still is still an issue is still an issue there. But at least in the general election, in many states, independents and members of the other party vote. <laughs> I mean, they they do everywhere. But in primaries, independents and members of the other party can't vote in many places, right? Um, and and so and even if they could, they might prefer not to or whatever, right? They might prefer to yeah. vote for their own party, etc. And so yeah, so the general election seems like the way to hold those people accountable, and you hold those people accountable in the general election, because while Trump maintains a, a, a disturbingly high level of support among registered Republicans, the Republican party has lost 17% of its membership since Trump became the head of that party. And then an yeah. additional six to 10% of, of, of people who remained registered Republicans turned around and voted for Joe Biden in the suite in the swing States this time around. Right. Um, and, and I, and I think maybe more of them would have in, in, um, in, in, in blue States, if it mattered, <laughs> as opposed to writing a third party or something, you know? And so if you take those two numbers and you put them together, Trump might be getting higher turnout among the white working class than they ordinarily get, but not enough to make up for losing nearly a quarter of the Republican vote. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I think there's definitely merit to that. I actually wanted to talk about Biden's tax plan specifically because a lot of people, I don't know if you experience this, but I experience this a lot. The fear mongering of Biden's tax plan was a justification. A lot of people used to either vote for Trump or just stay home to not vote Biden specifically. And that was kind of concerning. I think it's a really good example of messaging and straw man and what we can do to combat that moving forward. Okay, yeah, so let's talk taxes. So, uh, first off, what are your thoughts specifically on that from uh, from a principled conservative perspective? Um, on Biden's tax plan? Yeah. Uh, I I think I mean it's not it's not my ideal, right? I would prefer to have voted for somebody who is going to massively cut or even do away with taxes on the middle class, which is my actual tax policy position. Well, I think we should hold, hold raise on, the though. standard deduction. Go ahead. The one thing about that, though, is that you know even right-wing think tanks have identified that this is actually a tax cut for the nine, bottom 95% of Americans, his specific tax plan. Um, how so? The American Enterprise Institute admitted that Biden's tax plans, uh, specific his tax plans, most taxes will be borne by the richest Americans specifically and be stimulative to the economy. And would be showing up as, you know, I will link the report. I don't want to have to go through it. It's pretty big, but it does go through and highlight that. And I think if right wing sources and even Goldman Sachs, for example, are saying it'd be economically stimulative and, and a positive, which isn't something that you would normally hear from that perspective when it comes to the perspective of uh, democratic tax plans for the sake of straw manning, I think that's a, a good start in identifying where it is to really think about that. Because, for example, the argument of... Uh, specifically, first off, those under 400K wouldn't be getting an increase in income tax. Their property taxes could potentially increase, specifically when it comes to an inheritance, if there is a substantially higher inheritance 
you know, if, if it's a high enough specifically. Uh, one thing I will say is that tax professionals have identified that stepped up basis uh, would not in any capacity be repealed, specifically, even if it was a democratic administration, because there's so many nuances to getting rid of that. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But if those under $400,000 wouldn't be getting an increase in income tax, and meanwhile, people are saying that small businesses are going to, it obviously these two aren't necessarily related. I'm saying two separate messaging things because they all come together when it comes to a straw man of this is going to be a killer of small businesses. Uh, and that's not, that's just not true. There isn't a single piece of evidence, even from right wing think tanks who have analyzed it, that this would be harmful to small businesses in any capacity. But enough people believe that to vote against Biden off of that alone, at least from discussions I've had. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people just believe Donald Trump when he speaks, which is astounding if you think about it. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine how incredibly credulous you have to be to, to listen to Donald Trump speaking and say, boy, based on everything I know about this man's biography and how he's spoken to me in the past and how he's followed through on things he said in the past, I really think that I should just take what he's saying at face value. <laughs> right right it's true yeah i agree but you know i mean on some level on some level i'm not even sure those people really do believe him honestly i think that there are some people who do but most of the time when you point out that trump's a liar their response isn't to say oh no everything he said forever has always been true their response is all politicians lie right that is not a response that you give in if you think that the that the the person who's being called out for lying was actually telling the truth, right? If you think they're telling the truth, you say no. Here's the evidence that they were telling the truth. You don't say all politicians lie, right? And and th these are the reasons why I think that some significant percentage of of um of Trump voters are not motivated necessarily by policy um, at all. I think it's largely about culture wars for them. I think it's it's largely about wanting you know make america great again is largely about wanting to go back to some mythical america um that uh you know while they might not say it out loud is was supposed to have been better for for all white people and the reason it was better for all white people is because they kept you know black people under their thumb etc like that's what i think it's really about i think it's about culture issues i don't think it's actually about policy i don't think that these people are smart enough or interesting enough to know about or care about policy, most of them. Yeah, I I think maybe it's the sample size I talked to. I it was just a shocking amount. Um, but you know, the American Enterprise Institute has no reason to outright support Biden's plan in at face value from a uh, you know just purely partisan perspective. But realistically, it even says right here. I have the AEI report in front of me, and the first thing it says in the key points is. In 2021, Biden's proposals would increase taxes on average for the top 5% of households and reduce taxes on households in the bottom 95%. In 2030, Biden's proposals would increase taxes on average for households at every income level, but tax increases would primarily fall on the top 1% of income earners. Uh, what was the latter one? Biden would increase what kind of taxes on everybody? It, it didn't say specifically. It, it said for household every income level, but realistically... Tax experts have said that those under 400K wouldn't get an increase in specifically income tax. So, and the corporate tax rate itself doesn't, that, that hit doesn't hit small businesses. So it, it's pretty irrelevant in that sense too. Um, yeah, regardless. No, I mean, don't, get, don't get me wrong. I wasn't, I mean, you kind of cut me off before I could follow up. I was saying like my ideal tax plan would not be anything like Joe Biden's. My ideal tax plan. So, got it. I'm be, sorry. I completely misunderstood you. Yeah, which is which is not something that anybody is running on, right? No Republican is running on it. My ideal tax plan would raise the standard deductions of about a quarter of a million dollars a year adjusted for inflation, and nobody would pay income taxes below that. And then it would have a flat tax over that of something like 30% with no write-offs of any kind. And a value-added tax um, would replace uh, corporate income taxes. Um Alternatively, you could also roll corporate income taxes into personal income taxes, which is something that uh, Milton Friedman supported. But the more I think about it, I think I actually prefer just re replacing them with VAT. But in any case, that would be my ideal. Now, obviously, a practical person should never compare your ideal to the person's policy. That's how 
radicals on the alt-right and far left end up in the situation they're in where they don't vote at all. Because if you're always comparing it to an ideal, you're never going to get to vote for somebody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's literally what it it's means true. when you're taking the making the perfect the enemy of the good. So what you do is you compare it to the alternative. Well, the alternative is Trump and the GOP raised my taxes last time around by doing away with the state income tax deduction. So if all Joe Biden does is repeal the so-called GOP tax cut, right, which actually raised my taxes, um, that alone would actually lower my taxes, right? So I wasn't denying that there would be some benefits to the middle class. And I, and I also acknowledge that um, he's only raising taxes on, on very high earners who, make, who earn over $400,000 a year. All of that's true. Um, and frankly, it doesn't surprise me that right-wing think tanks like Biden's policy proposal because Joe Biden is a, you know, a, certainly on trade and foreign policy and taxes and things like that. He's uh he's not he's no lefty, you know. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. He's a, he he he's he he's the he has the most center left um progressive healthcare plan that anybody's ever run on, right? But well, objectively, he has the most progressive tax plan, even though it's far. I think there are some problems to it in terms of implementation, etc. Like I would do things very differently, but that's a whole another thing. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that and. That's why whenever I would talk to people who identify as progressives but refuse to vote, I think just saying he has the best infrastructure plan that anyone's run on. He has a healthcare plan that wouldn't outright take away coverage in the same way that Trump has identified when he called a gutting Medicare quote as a fun second term project. There's no comparison. So, issue by issue, even though I Biden was one of my last choices in the primary. I still can identify that he has made, at least on paper, some uh, genuine ground in a way that I think shouldn't be uh, gone under the radar because that's an important thing to understand. Now, how it will go about in practice, especially with the Republican Senate, time will tell. But that I, I think acknowledging from the start the positives will be a, a good thing specifically because if we want to talk about a time for actual unity and, and what I deem to be pragmatic unity, uh, this is a good place to start at it. His infrastructure plan, for example. And I think I, I don't I'm not convinced his tax plan would pass under Republican administration. Uh, sorry, under Republican Senate, but. I think there's a way for a good amount of it to get passed specifically. So that should be the focus. Well, and there's also a whole lot Biden can do, even if the even if Congress never does anything, he can reverse uh, Trump's executive orders. Yes, um, that's huge. He can do some of his own. Um, he can end the ridiculous unilateral trade war that we have with the entire civilized world right <laughs> he can uh he can get um he, he he can start rebuilding the bipartisan foreign policy establishment that we've had since world war ii which is pro-nato and anti-russia <laughs> you know he can he can fix most of the things that trump broke without actually involving congress and that's because trump didn't actually get congress to do much of anything either the only big thing he managed to get Congress to do was when his party controlled both branches, and that was the tax cut. They couldn't even build yeah. his wall, right? So it's going to be very easy. Basically, Biden in like one year will be able to undo just about everything. So yeah, I mean, I I I think that Joe Biden being president, you know, he can get us back into the Paris Climate Accord. Um, he can renegotiate the nuclear deal with Iran. He can do all this without Congress, right? Um, and, and so at, as a conservative, never Trump supporter who doesn't necessarily want the progressive left to get all of the things, all the goodies they want, um, I, I'm sitting pretty. I'm not too worried about it because if if, you know, four years of Congress doing nothing is better than another four years of Trump, you know, being a bull in the China shop of our democracy. Yeah, you're not going to have me disagreeing with <laughs> that last part for sure, but I I. I don't know the extent. I think on paper, you know, for example, reversing his executive orders is huge. I think re-entering uh, the cords is huge. I don't know the extent he would be able to negotiate with Iran in the same way. 
anymore. I think credibility has been lost to an extent because it demonstrates the U.S. as being potentially volatile. Uh, the exception being if people who uh, want to get rid of stupid agreements like that never have power again, which is not something I can guarantee right now. Uh, maybe my mind will change in a year. I really hope it does. Um, I'm just trying, I think I've, I was a lot more optimistic about things like that before COVID. Um, one thing that is a positive in, and this alone is a substantial improvement is someone who actually believes COVID is a legitimate threat and would listen to scientists. That's all we realistically needed during this time. And we would have been so much further off in comparison to where we are now with that alone. So, you know, it'll, it'll definitely be a improvement, but one thing is I I've heard that he's trying to make things difficult behind the scenes department wise, any way possible as a way to try and make the political move from the Republican side of look how ineffective a Biden administration is. Now, the extent he's able to do that by the time Biden is sworn in once again, time will tell, but I don't think that should be understated necessarily either. So I, I think it's a both and in that specific instance. Yeah, I mean, something to keep in mind is, um, you know, this does relate to the tax policy, too, and why you said these right wing think tanks are were pro Biden. I mean, part of the reason that they could come out with this analysis of Biden um, is because, one, as I said, Biden is no lefty, no matter what Trump said. And two, the alternative was Trump. Right. So deregulation is is good for the economy but in the long term like you read a reach a point of diminishing returns right at some point you have to kind of rein it in you have to have some consumer protections you can't let corporations just get away with raping and pillaging everybody left and right um and and so yeah you know if you if you just kind of blindly deregulate everything some of those deregulations are going to have a positive impact some of them are going to have a negative impact and in the short term the positive will probably outweigh the negative right but in the long term, what the market likes is stability and competence. And Trump was instable and incompetent, right? <laughs> so it's just really all Biden has to do is start filling um, the executive branch with qualified experts and professionals again. You know, the, the, the defining feature of populism, whether we're talking about alt-right or far-left populism, and AJ, I don't include you in that. I know you're not far-left. You're a social democrat. You're not a authoritarian communist or something like that right uh, or an anarchist right um yeah, but no you know, if you're if you're talking of course not yeah so if you're talking about you know the alt-right or far-left populace defining characteristic is that they are against expertise they're anti-intellectual they they think it's so important to them to make make everything the fault of evil elites so that they can let themselves off the hook right do they think they're going to solve all the problems in the world by just putting regular Joe Schmo in charge of everything? Well, regular Joe Schmo isn't qualified to do everything or anything, <laughs> frankly. I've started calling uh, Trump the patron saint of losers. That's I think that's who apt. he is. That's pretty apt. <laughs> I think that's who he is. You know, he, 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 he gives permission to losers to be losers. And he tells them, it's not your fault that you're a loser, right? It's not my fault that I lost the election. It was stolen from me by the evil George Soros deep state Jewish cabal NWO, don't you know, right? <laughs> and it's not your fault that you're unemployable and that you beat your kids and that your wife is divorcing you. It's all the fault of George Soros. He made you do those things. He made your wife leave. He probably bribed her. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is who we're dealing with. Um, and so I, I just I hope they get demoralized and go back under the rock and disappear from U.S. politics forever. I yeah, I here's the thing. I don't know the extent I buy that uh, people who are further left. I guess we're talking about it depends how how much further left than me. <laughs> but um, I don't think they're necessarily anti-intellectuals in the same way that Trumpism is. but your overall general point of there needing to be specific experts in fields being employed uh, in high level positions. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but yes, obviously in comparison to uh, all Biden needs to do is have people who know what they're doing in each respective department. Um, unfortunately, the bar has been set so low that 
the whole I'm not Trump thing rings true in a lot of areas. I don't think that's going to last very long. And I think the, there's a whole aspect of messaging that needs to be addressed because realistically, Biden should have won by a lot more. And there, I think there are several reasons why he didn't. But in terms of the things we can specifically control, I, I think messaging is a huge part of it and recognizing those specific concerns um, is a way to target the politically apathetic in a way that, at least in my personal experience, um, you know, for example, I, I was working with a congressional candidate within her primary for during her runoff. And a part of what enabled for there to be uh, a difference for her to win that primary was merely stating what the genuine differences are and recognizing the valid concerns of these other people and, and saying, yeah, I recognize, and I'm not talking, by the way, about bigots. I'm talking about people who legitimately have policy discrepancies or have concerns that they don't know how they are going to get solved. And speaking from that, and then at least demonstrating some sort of action towards it, even if there's some sort of obstruction, for example, from Republicans, whatever, at least demonstrating you're doing that and then being able to highlight that instead of saying, I'm not Trump and it's me or the Republicans, I think that is going to lose Democrats' power in the long run, especially well, during this transition. I don't, I don't think that it should be specifically about the personality of Trump, and I don't think it should be partisan. I don't think it should be, I'm not Trump or I'm not the Republican. I think it should be, I'm not incompetent. I'm not a traitor, <laughs> right? That sort of thing. Another way of putting it is I'm qualified and I'm a patriot, right? I would like to see both parties start to hold up the values that they should hold up and put down the values they should put down. And I think that if what it takes to appeal to the politically apathetic is to run people like Trump instead of people like Biden, then I, you know, oh, fuck yeah, the apathetic. But, but there's a way to, what I'm saying is there's a way to capture the apathetic without that. You can recognize their concerns in a way, you can be like Biden and accept concerns and go on the political offensive and demonstrate tangible solutions. I think Yang, Yang didn't go on the offensive enough, but he was a good example of someone who was attempting to, and I, I think in a way he was doing it, of bridging that specific divide solely based on messaging. And he's a perfect example of that being able to happen. Now, I, I think he, he was too safe in messaging, but you should basically take one of the main reasons why Trump was so successful in being the, on the offensive. A great example is in 2016, after his tape where, you know, he said, they'll let you do anything to a woman, et cetera. Uh, and we thought he was finished in that debate. At least I remember thinking this dude was finished at that time. 2016, I was so naive. But when all that he needed to do was he went and said, yep, that was locker room talk. But here I have today Bill Clinton's accusers. And now he's made it a wash, even though it shouldn't be a wash. And Trump obviously has had 27 different allegations, for example. But that doesn't matter. He, it is a perfect example of be on the offensive. So if you could have someone who's able to back themselves up if they need to play the defensive, someone like Biden, for example, with the offensive strategy of Trump, that I believe is a winning formula. That is someone who can appeal to uh, the everyday American, the working class American. Because political correctness, not in the sense of fake, you know, fake outrage and saying, oh, I'm against PC culture, but outright, you know, being going to talk like an everyday person, except having genuine solutions, and then going on the offensive when people are going against those solutions and are obstructing it, is something that has widespread appeal. And that, I believe, that's what I would personally be working on if I'm a Democratic strategist. Yeah, no, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I think the Democrats should win back some of those Trump voters. And I think they did win back some of them. They 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 did or Biden did um do better than Clinton in the Obama Trump districts. I mean, I guess that's sort of circular since obviously by definition they're Obama Trump because Clinton yeah. lost. <laughs> that's right. True. But the point being point being Biden regained some of those voters, right? 
Um, and, 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 you know, actually I thought it was really smart that the Biden campaign basically left it up to organizations like the Lincoln project to run the negative ads against Trump. Um, negative ads work particularly well when they're targeting independent, moderate, um, Republican independents or moderate Republicans. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and some percentage of those people voted, voted for Biden. Um, some of them didn't vote at all. It's actually rather interesting to see third parties did very poorly and, um, and well, that uh, doesn't surprise me at all. No. Well, I mean, it, they did exceptionally poorly this time around and the, the voter turnout was very high. So what that tells me is, you know, all the times that people like Corey and I were shouting into the, into, no, I'm not taking personal, I'm not taking credit for it myself, obviously, but I'm, there were lots and lots and lots, the thousands of other pundits making the same point that Corey and I were making, right? Which is third party votes are a waste of money are a wasted vote, right? Like staying home is not going to do any good. Voting third party is not going to do any good. And people got it. People, you know, they heard thousands of pundits saying that or they came to the conclusion on their own. I, I think what I would like to see is, yes, I agree. It shouldn't all be about I'm not the Republican or I'm not Trump. Um, but it, 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 what it should be about though, is we need to never forget the lesson that we learned about what happens when the far left makes the perfect, the enemy of the good and refuses to vote for the Democrat. Right. And instead, you know, basically bad mouths the Democrat and helps a Nazi become president. Right. We need to learn the lessons of what happens when partisan Republicans go, uh, I don't really like Trump, but you know, he can't be that bad. He'll probably grow up in office. He's got to, right? He'll, he'll, he'll put qualified people in to advise him. He won't just fill it with psychophants. So I'll go ahead and check the R box because that's what I do, right? We need to learn lessons about being that checked out about when we're not even talking about people who don't vote. We're talking about people who vote and are stupid and lazy about voting. Yeah. That, did you cut out there? You had a weird sound that just happened. Uh, no, no, I just stopped talking. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. It was, <laughs> I, I swear I heard a, like a robot sound for a second, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, I. Oh, that was I'm, just uh, George Soros turning on his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a cyber attack right now. That's what's happening. Yeah, uh, he was just flipping the switch so he could control <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, I. I get what you're saying, and I'm inclined overall to agree. I think there is some benefit, potentially, on a local level of a third party um, in this current system. But when we talk about, obviously, in the grand scheme of things, nationally, it's completely relevant, and it's designed to be that way. But I don't know the extent um, that the message is going to ring true in the same way. I, I hope so. My concern is I, I have a feeling that if those messaging concerns aren't addressed fast, a door is opened for a worse Trump to come in. That's my main concern, specifically. Yeah, no, I see your point. Yeah, I mean, basically, you're telling me like, Rio, I hear you. You you want the idiots to stop voting, but the problem is they probably will turn out and vote for the next idiot. <laughs> yeah, and and here's the thing. But I mean, I don't like. If but, Trump like what was do you, smart, but what he would have won. I guess what I would say specifically is, what do you say? What specifically do you offer those people? Right? Because you don't. I mean, if all you want is just to get them to vote for you, then you might as well just use Trump's platform right so what do you say to get those people to vote for you without betraying your values because my my problem is i think those people just have bad values i don't i don't think uh, that there is anything anything redeemable about them to speak to i think there is a a massive contingency that i completely agree with that and and my messaging isn't necessarily for those People who are supporting Trump as much as it is giving the leeway for that to potentially happen while trying to target the politically apathetic in the process. And the way I believe to do that would be, um, well, I think Yang is a decent example for, uh, for that, you know, despite disagreements I have about messaging and, and some policies or whatever. He talks, the way he identified it, problem, cause, solution. 
while you're identifying the problem, recognizing the two-party system has failed you in this capacity, this is why, this is how I would solve it, this is why it's important to implement XYZ policy. And that, but you say it in a way that is fundamentally aggressive. What people don't like, from my personal experience, in terms of why people seem to vote against Democrats, is at least for these past four years, this doesn't necessarily apply prior to Trump, but it might have been simmering prior to Trump. I just can't prove it in the same way because there's tangible results when it comes to Trump. A part of Trump was an outright, ex um, an outright refusal to accept the status quo of politeness and niceties, and Trump would just call out shit. And they said they liked that he was honest, even though he wasn't honest in any capacity. So if you have someone that's raw and genuine, but able to go on the attack, I don't think you necessarily have to betray your values by a stretch. Will you win the bigots? No. Will you win people who are disillusioned with the process? And in 2016, might have been duped by Trump. Now, granted, as you mentioned, some of those people already voted Biden, but there's still a massive contingency of people who didn't vote. So if we can demonstrate to them their vote would actually go towards something tangible and you're not going to take any BS either, then I think you have a, a really good argument. And I think that's where when people say Joe Schmo needs to run, I think it comes from a place of trying to say you want people who know your everyday concerns and will fight for those everyday concerns. They're not mutually exclusive, though. And that's why I am so inclined to potentially make a run down the line is because I, I genuinely believe that if I can go out there and say unapologetically, these are the problems, this country has failed you by X, Y, Z, that doesn't mean we throw out the process, this is the implementation, and then debate them on the merits, but not do it in a way that is too polite that when they go when you know when they go low we go high thing it's when they go low you hit them back you don't digni you don't say i won't dignify it with a response you call it out outright and you say kick them in the face that's because <laughs> they go low kick that's them exactly in the face <laughs> that's exactly right when they go low make them pay you don't go low initially you make them force your hand but you don't back down that I, I definitely Trump think you're right about Robert. punching back. I definitely think you're right about punching back. And I think if you can get some percentage of non-voters to turn out for you, that could make a difference on the margins. But, you know, part of the problem with Yang's campaign, and, and this was largely just due to the fact that he was new. And, and when you're brand new to politics, you don't know what you're doing and you don't have name recognition, right? You yeah, don't he have should a have smaller, realistically. Yeah, you don't have a well. It depends on what he was trying to do. I don't think he was trying to win. I think he was trying to change the conversation and, and put some policies into the Overton window, and he succeeded at that, right? But like, part of the problem is, you know, he was just getting the votes of apathetic people. He was getting the votes of anti-establishment Bernie Sanders people, anti-establishment Trump people in the Democratic primary, and maybe twenty percent of his voters were normal Democrats, right? Okay, he needed to get four times as many normal Democrats plus those anti-establishment Bernie and Trump people, right? Then he could have won, right? Now, again, I'm not, I don't think that anybody realistically expected Yang to win. I think it was stacked against him, not because of some evil conspiracy, but because he didn't have the reputation. He didn't have the, he didn't, he didn't have connections in the party or in the media. The media didn't like, yep. they weren't malicious toward him. They just didn't know him. Right. Especially at the presidential level. I mean, it's actually kind of arrogant to think that you can just come from nowhere to to run for president. Right. And yeah, if Yang was doing it because he was just trying to get become president and that's that was his motivation, then it would have been arrogance. But that wasn't his goal. His goal was to try to get people to talk about UBI and some other good policies like democracy dollars. And stuff. But couldn't and he, he have done that, that with, for example, a congressional seat? Even he could have identified moving the Overton window. Um, by in some small scale first to show, because just saying outright, well, this happened in Alaska, it doesn't, you're still someone who doesn't come from the political sphere. And I don't, I didn't buy the argument of there's not time for me to not talk about UBI. 
he he could have achieved that goal without running for president. I don't and agree. I, I mean, I think I think that running for president got him way more publicity at the national level. And and, and you know, think about it took Bernie Sanders like a lifetime to make to get to the point where there's a majority of support for Medicare for all. There's now more yeah, support in polls true. for universal basic income than there is for Medicare for all. And Yang did that in one primary. Well, that's I mean, COVID kind of puts a dent in in that. To some capacity, I guess it depends on when. Yeah, but people wouldn't even know that that was an. People wouldn't even know that that was an option if he hadn't run. You know what I mean? They would probably be talking about relief or something, right? But UBI specifically pulls better than Medicare for all in every party. I admit, I'm probably my perception might be a little skewed because I had been talking about UBI for a long time prior. But that doesn't mean everybody was. Yeah, no, the vast majority of the population didn't even know it was a thing until Yang ran. Yeah. it's definitely a, a benefit for him in that sense, for sure. Like, I, I don't think it was a bad, you know, it wasn't a bad outcome, him running by any stretch of the imagination. But, and I, I think there are good and bad lessons. Well, and also think about the fact learned. that his, his running for president inspired dozens of people to run for Congress, right? So since that's dozens of too. people running is better than one person running. Yeah, I agree with that. That's, that's 100% true. I think you honestly change your mind about that in the sense of, the grassroots aspect of running wouldn't be happening in the same capacity. So yeah, I think you're right about that. All right. So AJ, it's really great to have you back on everybody. If you want to hear more AJ, the last episode he was on was number 122. Um, I'm going to give AJ uh, the last word to say whatever he wants to say. And then um, we'll be inviting him back on now as part of our roster of recurring progressive guest stars. All right, AJ, take it away. Uh, well, first off, I appreciate you having me back on. This is the first time I've talked politics uh, since my incident in August. So this is me uh, not ne- not nearly on top of my game necessarily, but I'm excited to do it. I'm glad that you're giving me the chance to do it, and I look forward to future discussions. Also, just as a side note, go check out our episode specifically that we did together about education policy. That's still my favorite discussion we've had, and I think it kind of demonstrates uh, how to implement the broader point I'm making about messaging, because Rio is a direct example of what would happen if someone hears the argument said in, in a way that could benefit people, and I think that could be a microcosm established for the future, so gives me hope. Yeah, that episode's called uh, Bear Cave Education. Uh, it was a while back. I don't remember the exact number, but you'll have to scroll down a bit to see it. It will stand out because it will have an emoji with a bear. <laughs> <laughs> the That's head of true. A bear. Yes. Yeah, for a while, AJ was on a series called uh, a mini series uh, for this podcast called The Bear Cave because the joke was that he was baby bear because he's because he's a baby. Um, and Corey was the mama bear because he's a big bleeding heart. And I was the Papa Bear because I'm, you know, tough love. (laughs) Tough but fair. (laughs) All right. And uh, as we say, moving forward is our gumbo. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Moving Forward Podcast. This is a type of discussion that is vital for preserving democracy and ensuring we have a viable path forward as a country. If you want to support us, go to movingforwardpod.com. That's movingforwardpod.com. You can donate to us, or better yet, ensure you're listening to as many episodes of us as possible. Thanks for listening.